Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Creative Control with Beesh Comic. Kim Fu is an award-winning author and poet who currently calls Seattle, Washington home. Originally from Calgary, Alberta, Kim's debut novel, For Today I Am a Boy, won the Edmund White Award for debut fiction in 2014 and was celebrated on Best of the Year lists throughout North America. Her work is available via HarperCollins, and Kim's latest book is The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, which follows the trajectory of five women who, as young girls, were randomly grouped together for an overnight kayaking trip that goes horribly and traumatically wrong and are then forced to move past it and live the best lives possible. In its use of temporal shifts for multiple close character studies, Kim's book is truly captivating, and she and I had an extensive conversation about her background as a writer, how she almost studied science instead of pursuing that writing career, survivalism, film adaptations of books, gatherings like the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, which she's actually attending in the fall of 2018. Of course, we talked about her book, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, and we talked about many more things. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and of course, listeners like you who make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash creativecontrol, Download episodes and subscribe to this podcast and urge others to do the same. This is the 419th episode of Creative Control, featuring Kim Fu with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm very well. Very well. It's, uh, it's a bit soggy and rainy here in my city of Guelph, where I'm calling you from. Uh, where in the world are you? Um, I'm in Seattle, Washington, and it's a beautiful day here, actually. That's unusual. We've switched. I, isn't Seattle normally dreary and rainy? It is. I would say it's raining maybe 80% of the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got you to sort of soak in these few days while, when they come. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, congratulations on the sun. I, uh, <laughs> that's great. Where are you actually? You're, you're Canadian, though, right? Where are you from? Um, I was born in Calgary, uh, but I grew up most of my life near Vancouver, and then uh, 
I lived in Montreal for a few years, then I went back to Vancouver, uh, and and now I'm here. Okay, nice. So you are a Western person who you you checked out the eastern part of the country. You dabbled, and then you yeah, I think that's a pretty common Canadian story. Yeah. You dabble around <laughs> if you can. That's true. What brought you to Montreal? I went to school there. I went to McGill for my undergrad. Okay, okay. So uh, Montreal is a lovely city as well. I, I did you enjoy it there? I loved Montreal, especially when I was there. I think it's an amazing place to be a student. Uh, I had a phase when I moved back to the West Coast, actually, where like I couldn't stop talking about it, and I would hear myself, and I'd be like, "You, you got to stop talking about Montreal so much." <laughs> what, what now? What kinds of things would you say about it? Because I have gone on the record on this show and elsewhere saying it is. Absolutely one of my favorite all-time cities. I just enjoy every aspect of it on some level. I mean, then you talk to people who live there, and they're like, well, to be honest, the infrastructure, the government stuff, the healthcare, that's like the Wild West. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. You wouldn't even understand. But I'm like, oh, well, I, I haven't uh, dealt with that. What did you like? And, well, I guess within that same breath, what did you like and dislike about Montreal? Yeah, see, that's why I say it was a great place to be a student. You know, it was a great place to be 19 uh, because it's incredibly cheap and there's so much fun, free cultural stuff to do all the time. Uh, it's like a great party city. The food is incredible. Like it, it's a it it was so much fun then. Like I could see it being very frustrating as a working adult or a person with a family, say. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, and then you know, I think it's just also I was there during those years. Uh, and everybody remembers those years a certain way. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the festivals all summer, they close down the streets. You know, that that gives a city a certain feel. Uh, and I did feel like the food was like incredibly cosmopolitan. Like you could kind of get anything and it would be amazing and, and dirt cheap. Which, yeah, which is definitely not the case everywhere. Yeah, like Calgary and, and Vancouver, culturally speaking, did you feel as enriched there? I mean, it's you're talking about a time and place in your life when you're 19 and you're like, holy, like, wow, this exists. This is an amazing thing. But did you, was it, was it, were you also comparing it to the other cities you lived in? Well, I feel like I didn't know Vancouver until I moved back as an adult, actually. Um, I grew up on the North Shore, uh, which is like its own sort of suburb and had its own sort of bubble existence. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and actually, like, um, you know, Vancouver has a very hot, very large East Asian population, like just comparatively speaking to Montreal. So yes. that was a bit of a surprise. Like, uh, I was not used to having my ethnicity remarked upon or like being notable at all, kind of. Uh, in a way, it was when I first moved to Montreal. Hmm. Okay, uh, that's interesting. But, it, but at the same time, I did, I felt like Montreal was, was more cosmopolitan in like a, in a broader sense, at least then, you know, and all my information is incredibly outdated too, right? Like I haven't lived <laughs> in Montreal in a decade. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, I, that's totally understandable. And uh, I will not hold you to account on uh, any current uh, situations going on in any of the aforementioned cities. What, what actually brought you to Seattle then? Oh, my husband got a job here. Oh, well, that's... he's also Canadian. Uh, he's, he's from London, Ontario, uh, but he got a job here and, and we came out and I, I at least ended up liking Seattle quite a bit. What is, are you are you speaking ill on his behalf? Is he not as much <laughs> of a fan? Uh, I think for him, it's like you know he he just went where the work was, kind of. Uh, and for me, it was more of like an open question, like what do I think of all these places? Um, just because I had that luxury of being, you know, Mike. I, I all of my jobs are kind of freelance, so to me, I'm always like I'm thinking in that way. Yeah, as I could do them anywhere. Uh, and and yeah, I, I like Seattle. It was. Kind of a hard place to break into at first, uh, like harder than other places I've lived. But I really love mainly the outdoors here. Like I love that they're so close. Uh, 
you know, that you can, you can go hiking and you can hop in the ocean and everything's just right there. Yeah. And, and sorry, how long have you been there? Uh, since 2012. 2012. Okay. So you have seen, uh, you've experienced rather America in a strange period. Are you, how does that feel as a Canadian in America right now? Yeah, I did not realize, uh, this is going to sound incredibly naive, I didn't realize how big a deal it would be to immigrate to the U.S. and also how it would feel to not be able to vote. Obviously in the, because, you know, I'm still not an American citizen, I'm still uh, just a permanent resident. Uh, Mm -hmm. And obviously when we're talking about, you know, the high level stuff, like the the federal elections and, and the things you hear about the most, but also on you know, on a down ticket granular level too, like not be able to vote in my local ordinances and things like that, where one vote makes a huge difference, you know, like where yeah, yeah. the margins are, are very tiny sometimes, or, you know, you're, yeah. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. And on a safety level, how are you feeling? Like I, I, I just watch what's going on and I mean, we're, you probably are aware that like Canada is becoming a bit uh, more like America. We were, we experienced more uh, incidents of, of terror and fear and, and, you know, are you feeling that as well? You know, I'm, even though I know abstractly, like that statistically I'm far more likely to get shot in Seattle than I, than I ever was anywhere else I lived. Uh, that's not how it feels on a day to day basis. You know, you still, you still kind of go about your life and it, it just, it just sits, it's just sort of one of many things you have to compartmentalize, I think. Um, and in, in terms of statistics, right, it's still not, I mean, I'm way more likely to to get in a crash on the highway, you know, and that's also something you have to put out of mind when you're driving. That's uh, true. And so, yeah, I don't I don't worry about it on a day to day basis on like a on like a personal level when I'm like out on the street. Um, it's it is it's more something I think about and worry about on, in like an abstract way. Hmm. I, I think that's probably the healthiest thing you can do. I mean, the fragility of life comes in. Oh, by the way, are you uh, uh, this is going to may, maybe be at a left field, but are you a parent by chance? No, I'm not. Okay, yeah, I've been talking a lot about parenting with fellow parents on the show, and that that also changes your relationship to living and mortality, and you know, it's it's a it's a strange time to uh, be alive because it feels like uh, if you get too mired in uh, the fear, uh, it just seems like our lives are in constant peril these days. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I, I I feel like the future feels so unstable; it would be hard to to know how to advise your children or answer their questions because there'd be a lot of like, well, I have no idea what the world will be like when you're an adult. Yeah, I think just as you were saying, it's kind of one day at a time. You just sort of, you, you can't be afraid of things. You just have to deal with things as they come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this sort of brings us to your latest novel, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore, which I really enjoyed and found enthralling. Congratulations on this book. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And, and it's got me thinking about foundational aspects of life, because uh, as you get to a certain age, uh, you start to maybe be a bit more self-aware about your personality and you think about your building blocks. And if you talk to the right analyst or therapist, they might be like, let's go back to your childhood trauma <laughs> and, <laughs> and let's figure out why you feel this way about this, you know. And so I was thinking about this as I was reading this book, uh, because I think that's something you, was that on your mind a little bit? Like this notion of what makes adults 
uh, behave the way they do, uh, think about things the way they do. Well, it must have been something in their childhood. Had that come to your, had that come to mind? Yeah, I think what really interested me is when it's subtle or unconscious. Uh, I think a lot of people have a narrative about themselves that fits that model. They say, you know, I'm like this because these things happened. Um, but all kinds of other things happened that they don't think was a big deal or they maybe they don't even remember anymore uh, that is still shaping them. But, you know, they don't remember in that way. Like they don't remember in the sense that they can't recall all the specific details of what happened, but they're still they were changed by it forever and they and they it, it has affected their inner emotional climates in ways that they may not themselves be able to recognize or explain. Um, because I, I do think it's it's easier to, you know, to think about trauma as being as having very clear effects, like very clear one to one effects and harder to think about it affecting different people really differently or especially working in all these very subtle, almost imperceptible ways. And so what exactly inspired you to take all of that on in the form of a of a novel? Was it something drawn from your own personal experience? Was it something you had been sort of reading about or talking about with people? Uh, well, the the way it the way it actually happened was uh, I had these these characters in mind first, and that's that's generally how I work, right? Well, it's my first novel. That was the case as well, but that was simpler because they were a family, so they're mm -hmm. you know they live in a house together, and you just follow it from there. Uh, but for this book, you know, they 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 were they were these five women girls. You know, they existed at kind of all ages in my head. Uh, and I didn't know how they were connected. And I tried different things. And for a long time, I was working on a version where they lived on the same street where they were neighbors. Uh, and it just it wasn't right. Uh, and then I went and I did a residency, the the Burton House residency in Dawson City mm -hmm. in the Yukon. And I was up there during the winter. So I was there from October to December, uh, so which is during the freeze up, right? So it, you know, it drops below minus 40. And the town shrinks from a lot. Like I, I was going to say, I think it's like 2000 to like a couple hundred, but I'm not sure that's accurate. Uh, but it shrinks a lot. Yeah. And, and the people who live there, uh, they're very, they're very matter of fact about survival skills, kind of, even though the town itself, you know, everyone has diesel heat and high speed internet and everything. Um, nevertheless, like if you're living in that kind of climate, kind of geographically isolated from other places, uh, you have to, you know, know how to start a fire in a pinch kind of thing. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, so I, I, was, I was there once for the Dawson city music festival and I, just talking to people about their experience there is truly fascinating. Um, and, and even just experiencing things like you were there in the winter, but I was there in the summer, I suppose. And just the all day sun, you know, the sun not going down, that's sort of weird. Uh, <laughs> that's a strange experience to, uh, to, to sort of go through on some level. Yeah, I picked the winter because I thought the opposite would make me insane. <laughs> I thought all, I thought all day sunlight would, would just drive me crazy. Whereas the absence of sunlight was actually surprisingly beautiful and, and a really neat thing to experience because, you know, that one hour of daylight, the whole thing is sunrise and sunset, right? So it's yeah. like, there's this period of the day where the sun is just like burning orange, and then it's gone again. And then you can see the stars and the northern lights again. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. So you you were there and you were talking to people about their survival skills. And then that inspired this notion of this story. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, like that because I was thinking about survival in that way. And in particular, like all the skills that I lacked, right. Even though I was, and, and, you know, I was kind of blithe, like looking back, like I would hike all day by myself, like out, you know, out in the snow and the, the hills and stuff and just, and not tell anybody where I was, you know, it was like the things I was doing were dangerous in retrospect, but they didn't feel that way. Yeah. Um, 
but then, yeah, once I got started thinking about that, the, the image came to me of these, these characters that were, you know, going in circles and going nowhere for me of sitting in kayaks, you know, and then for over, I think, like sort of three days and three nights that kind of just blurred together into one big piece of time because there was no light. Um, I just, I, you know, I wrote a version of the framing narrative for this novel. There. Okay. So yeah. the, the five characters that you conjured are uh, Nita, Andy, Isabel, Dina, and Siobhan, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I got them. I didn't get Did I forget anyone? There's five of them. I got to keep track. I think you got them all. <laughs> so do they represent, like, I mean, I've read the book. For people who haven't yet read the book, I hope they do, first of all. But secondly, to you, do they represent... Uh, different skill sets that one might require uh, for such a scenario in, in terms of survival? Uh, while I was writing them, I definitely think, didn't think about them in that way. Like while I was writing them, they just felt like people to me who came with these characteristics and, and you know, life and background that I had very little control over. That, that's how it feels I'm creating them. When I look back on it, I can see them that way as, you know, representing different specific things. Uh and I think less the the skills you'd want to have in the outdoors as much as any group of young girls on a playground sort of like they're they're more of those different types, and then that just manifested differently once they were out in the wild, yeah, they definitely each possess uh you know they i think they reflect certain personality types, but at the same time it's not it's not like uh you know. Isabel's one way and Dina's this way only, but on some level, I think you were trying to come up with these kinds of personalities and how they would uh, sort of cohere and potentially, you know, how they might be divided. And there's also this competitive aspect when they're at the in the campground as well. I mean, the, you were you're were just trying to capture that experience of being young women grouped together, sort of randomly, and then trying to figure out how that dynamic would deal with a, a really horrible situation, I guess. Yeah, I think the dynamics would be very familiar to anybody who, you know, who went to elementary school or middle school. It's just, it's just a change of setting and a heightening of stakes. Yeah. Are any of these characters drawn from your own experience or, or things you recall from, from childhood or, or people or personalities that you encountered? The the way I generally craft characters, it, it's, it's like one aspect of myself or someone else or a single thought kind of blown into a whole person. And, you know, like, like, uh, like Siobhan, from whose perspective we see the camp sections, uh, she, I think, especially at that point in her childhood, draws a lot of her knowledge about the world from idyllic children's books. Uh, and I think, you know, definitely I relate to that. Uh, and, then, and then, and then, you know, being, being disappointed by, by the reality of the situation she had read about. Right. Uh, and then I think, you know, Nita, she's, she's hyper rational and very intelligent in a specific way. Uh, and at the same time, perhaps not as emotionally aware. And, and, you know, and then I think she's, she's particularly frustrated by that through her life uh, as, as a woman and as a woman of color. And I think that that is, you know, even though like, you know, obviously I'm not a, a genius of the type that she was. Uh, I think a lot of people relate to that there are a certain kind of impatience, at least in certain situations where it's just like, why is everyone else being so stupid? You know, like just that, that emotion is sort of like, it fills up so much of her life because she does think so much faster and like process information in this way. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. So, you, and, and, and is that you? Is that a little bit of you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, but yeah, I think, I think everybody feels that way sometimes. <laughs> so or I hope, I hope everybody feels that way. Sometimes. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm curious if you feel like, 
Well, there's a there's a few things going on in the. I mean, camping. First of all, camping. I know that that's the ultimate for some of us. That's like just surviving a camping trip is a big deal. Uh, <laughs> do you have a relationship with camping per se, or was it just like as you said, you were kind of going through scenarios in which you know people are put in a position where they have to kind of fend for themselves? Why did camping appeal to you per se? I'm st- I'm still really interested in the idea of of survivalism and the kind of new. I guess, prepper type of living or like off-grid living or homesteading. Uh, it is something I find I find really interesting. It's not something I have experience with, really. Uh, you know, as a kid, I would have said I was a very indoor kind of kid, you know, like a book and video game loving kind of kid. Yeah. But I did still grow up on that North Shore. Like my, our, you know, our house was up on a mountain and, you know, bears walked through the backyard. And, and you know, so you were still you're still exposed to that. You're still in nature and you still have this expectation that you're going to be interacting with it all the time. Um, and then even my, my public elementary school, we had outdoor school where we would do a couple overnights and there was ocean kayaking and outdoor rock climbing and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, yeah, so I was like exposed to it, even though I, I wouldn't have said that was my natural personality type, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah, it it is something I find really interesting because it is kind of a, it's kind of an odd choice in some ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> to go, to try to relax in the elements, yes. Yeah, I, like, or, you know, it, it is something I, I enjoy to some degree, like I enjoy out being in nature, but the idea of, you know, digging my own trench toilet and that kind of thing, like that people choose to do that yeah. uh, when it is a very challenging problem, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like that we, that we've solved a lot better in large groups um, that, you know, this I want to be truly independent concept uh and then but and then yeah so it's interesting to me as like a lifestyle choice people make but then it's it's also interesting to me it's like how would most of us do if we were just flung into that yeah absolutely so as people you know are gathering here something goes horribly wrong at this camp forevermore and these young girls are put in a situation where they're lost uh as you read you realize you know they're dealing with uh, all sorts of adversity, and it's horrifying and tragic on, on many levels. But then you've done something structurally with this book that I, I found very fascinating in terms of the temporality of this story. And I wonder if you can—and I'm, I'm always careful when I'm speaking with authors. I don't want to give too much away because I think uh, I want—you know, obviously we want people to check out this book— but can you talk about the what you've done here with temporality and within that expand upon why you chose this as a, a writing device? Yeah, sure. So the structure of the book alternates between this incident at camp and then uh, the girls' lives beyond the camp, so before and after, as you can kind of see where they came from and what the fallout was uh, of this for the rest of their lives. Um, and I never saw the book, once once I had landed on on what it was that linked these girls. Like once the book was in, the story was in the form it was going to be, uh, this was always the structure I had in mind. Mm-hmm. This because, back and forth thing, you mean? Yeah, 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 this back and forth. I never thought about doing it in a straight linear fashion, like having all the camp stuff first and then all the or adult stuff later or like, uh, you know, jumping back and forth between the girls' perspectives um, constantly. In part because I feel like they're, like most of them I would say are are sort of, they're not necessarily likable. Uh, they're they're sort of challenging people to come around to their way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. and I think that would be extremely hard to do if I was jumping between them in a way that so that all their stories were being told concurrently and in a linear way. 
Um, I think you kind of need to sit with each one for a really long time to understand how she, why, how and why she sees the world the way she does. Um, and then the other thing was because what interested me was seeing this one event, you know, kind of spider out uh, through different lives. Um, I never wanted that campus unit to feel far away to the reader. Uh, I wanted them to sort of feel like they were always in it the way I think these characters sort of felt like they were always in it. Uh, right. And the, the structure seemed like the best way to do that. Now, you, you've also done a thing where, you know, they again, it's a random assortment of, of kids on some level, and they're pulled together and they go through this horrible adversity and then they splinter off and live their lives. But you actually uh, intertwine a couple of the lives, right? Like in adulthood and in as they go on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what, what prompted that choice, this notion that they would still be connected? I think one of the characters says something like, Canada is incredible. Is like incredibly geographically large, but psychically very small. Yes. Um, I, I found, you know, I thought that was just that. That to me is also a very Canadian experience. That somehow, even when you're, even if you are, end up being the kind of person that bounces all over the country, you're going to run into people, and your lives will be, you know, re- will be will be mixed in different places and in different times. Um, I actually think it would be more satisfying if they were more intertwined. Like, I think that that would have been, I think that that's, that's a very satisfying experience as a reader. Um, when things, when things echo back and forward and, and people, you know, people end up encountering again and things pay off like a long time later and that kind of thing. Um, I didn't feel like it suited the story to have a, a ton of that. Like I did feel like the nature of most of these characters would be that they would never want to speak to each other again. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were two in particular that I felt, I felt like it, it was just like more likely that they would be thrust together. And then also I feel like because they had kind of the most divergent experiences within the, the camp experience, like they almost, like they sort of interacted the least at camp. Right. So I, and I felt like, I felt like that, that was like paradoxically kind of the driver later in adult life that, that, that would, that would tie them together is that they, they could, they could keep their own versions of the story safe because their, their stories had sort of diverged the most. Yeah, this that's that's it's a weird thing that I think you're speaking to uh, here, and that it is a small world, isn't it? Like, I mean, I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind on a social level. Like, you might always run into someone, so you better be kind to them. Yeah, yeah, I agree, especially in the arts world. <laughs> in the arts world, for sure. But that that is that a comment you think you were subconsciously making or consciously making? Like this notion of, you know, y- y- we're always going to be connected in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think that's something I believe. I don't think the book comes down on that quite so clearly, uh, like in like in a moral sense, like the the be kind part. Yeah. I think the book just says you will never escape each other. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think it, the book lands on be kind necessarily. I think the book is a bit a bit more grim on that. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a it's a totally uh, haunting book on some level for me. It has it, it proved to be anyway when I when I was reading it because I. I found myself uh, particularly jumping through time and then encountering, in some cases, greater tragedy. Uh, <laughs> just like, oh, man, like what is coming? Like it just kept me guessing, and I, I, I appreciated that. And I mean, I think you are trying to – well, I, I'm curious about that. What do you suppose you're saying, if anything, about the way life sort of unfolds? I mean, it's different for everyone, but it's 
this is a life can prove to be grim for your characters beyond the incident that we're discussing, right? Yeah, I would say for you know, I think for 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 one of them, it's 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 this huge defining event. It's sort of like the worst thing that ever happens to her, and it shapes her in a in a very dramatic way, and she and affects like her whole life through and through. Um, and then for another character, it's sort of part of a pattern of events uh, that affect her cumulatively, and it it definitely wouldn't seem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I heard to be the worst of them. And then others, I think it's just, it's, I, I think when I write children, I often write sort of moment to moment um, because I think childhood is very intense in that way. Like moment mm-hmm. to moment, it is filled with drama. Right. Um, everything is new and, and, and uh, yeah, I think everything feels that way. But then I, I find when I write adults, it's often like a collection of stories kind of or episodes that together say something or form something. And I think in adulthood, a lot of those formative things are are tragic, you know, and and I, you know, and I think for for I, I'm being so vague. I feel like, but um, but I, I feel like for for again for one character, I feel like uh, the book focused on specific episodes of tragedy in her life um, because they were linked. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, the nature of the book is because you don't see her whole life. You don't see her living moment to moment as an adult in this way, and all the interstitial time. You just see these like big tragic moments because of what they say together. Uh, it's, you know, it, it can make her whole life seem very grim when in fact, I think it's that that's, yeah, I think that's how adult is, or that's adulthood is, or that's how like meaning is found in adulthood is sort of bundling disparate stories together. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to that foundational aspect of things that I was referring to earlier, just for you personally, like has this exercise or any other, uh, previous exercise kind of put you in a position to kind of contemplate your childhood and, and sort of figure out, map out how you've gotten to where you are now as an adult? Has, has anything triggered that? I think being a writer, you never stop doing that. Uh, I think, I don't think that this book, I, I would say it, it went in the opposite direction, kind of. I think, uh, I think first as a writer, it's, it's, it's kind of a narcissistic impulse. Like I think first you analyze your own children, childhood and map it out and its meaning and why it is the way you are. Hmm. Um, but there's kind of only so much you can say with your own life. Um, Alexander Chi said something like, you write a novel to describe something you've learned from your life that is not described by describing your life. Right. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. It's something like that. Uh, and I think that's what that's what happens later. I think, you know, you, you gather these insights from your life, but they're not 
but it, you know, they, they kind of, they, they grow into, into bigger stories. Um, well, I, I bring it up because I would argue that on a socio cultural level right now with the way social media works, the, with the way we interact with each other and the way we monitor our own existence based on metrics there's something going mm -hmm. on <laughs> with it, with just our own self-evaluation every day. I think it's going to lead to some real and, and has already led to some real psych trauma, frankly. But I guess that's where I'm coming from with these questions about reflection and self-reflexiveness in relation to these characters. Because in the jumping around of temporality, it did make me th it did make me think of that. Like, how did I? How do we get where we are? Um, and how do we assess ourselves as people? Well, in some cases, we would look back on specific incidents from our childhood or our educational background, our parents, whatever it is. But now we're in a zone where everyone's got more ego on the table than maybe they've ever had before, it feels like. Um, and you can, I'd love to hear your commentary on this. But And I'm just, it's just a constant self-reflexive sort of, uh, experience that many of us who engage with our phones and computers are are having. Um, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of of where this? Because I feel like this book is a it, it's not meant to be this way, but I feel like it's a very it captures this moment in time in a in a way that I, I think is fa fascinating to me uh, on some level. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think I was resistant to social media at first because for for I think the obvious reasons I think the way most people feel about it at first is it, it, it's, it feels like you're chronicling your life rather than living it. You know, you're taking pictures of things rather than looking at them and et cetera. Uh, but my actual experience of it, especially as time has gone on. And then again, especially as a writer, uh, it has connected me to a lot of people yeah, um, and yeah. has made my, my world feel bigger kind of. And it made it, it makes me feel like I don't, I almost don't live in a geographically specific place sometimes. Like it's like, I don't, I'm like, I'm not, sometimes I feel like I don't live on in Seattle. I live on the internet. <laughs> um, but there, yeah. And there are a number of people who I, I have met through, you know, through Twitter uh, and who I feel like I know and they feel like they know me. And then when we do meet for the first time in person, it, it feels like we're coming with this like rich history with each other. Right. Um, which is, which is actually a very neat experience. Um, I do hear what you're saying about, I do feel like we're we're watching ourselves all the time and sort of watching ourselves, watching ourselves. And I, I, I still have not like really processed that. Like it still feels so new to me. <laughs> um, there, there are a few, a few books actually that have come out that I think are really interesting on that. Guillaume Morissette's uh, recent novel. Um, and then, and then I'll actually, and then also um, Zoe Lee Peterson's novel too, next year for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, both of those, I feel like they're, they're not about this exactly, but they just, they exist in that in that universe in a way I feel like a lot of people aren't aren't writing that way yet. Like they, they exist in like the very, very present moment when this is how we live, um, where so much of our existence is sort of mediated through the Internet. Um, and I think they both write about relationships uh, as, you know, being mediated that way. And and not not just like especially especially uh, Peterson's book, like it's not it's not so much like you know, modern relationships online, but what kind of that has done to offline discourse, like the way uh, people talk to each other, um, which is very loaded with sort of self-analysis and, and 
and all like all like they've they've done all this internal work and all this abstract work about identity um but it but nevertheless they're still sort of behaving in these like emotionally messy ways yeah uh well i wasn't yeah, I, think, uh, I wasn't trying yeah, to suggest it was an existential crisis per se uh <laughs> but uh th- I, I feel like there's a lot going on there no i just i think it's amazing to me that these books like came out like a couple of years ago, like that they, the, that those writers had processed this moment and like enough to write a novel about it so fast. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I'm still, you know, I'm still sort of processing it, you know, like I haven't come to that place yet. Uh, but some people have, and that's incredible. <laughs> well, I do think it's important to get to know oneself these days, uh, because I think we lose ourselves in, in, in these, uh, platforms a little bit. Like who, who am I really? And I feel like, the characters in your book, as your book develops, they're going through this in their own way. Like, who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? And then you're kind of mapping out maybe at least one reason why they are the way they are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I, I find it fascinating. And you, you mentioned some writers there. I'm just curious about your own practice. How did you get into writing yourself? Uh, I, I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little kid. Um, I to the point I actually don't remember starting, you know, like I have a, a journal that's from when I was six and it's marked as journal two, like there was a journal one. <laughs> um, and I wrote, you know, I wrote for stories and poems and a lot of it was just sort of emulating what I was reading. Like I would be reading something and then I'd be like, well, I wish it went like this or, you know, what if this was different? Uh, and then I would write a version like that. And then actually around grade 11, I guess it, you know, I decided that a writer was not a real job and you had to pick something <laughs> else and write on the side and a hobby. And so I actually went to study chemical engineering at first. Oh. But I very quickly realized, like, it, that it, it wasn't for me. You know, that I, I liked I liked uh, math and science quite a lot as a as a thing to study. Like, it was, it was, those classes were very fun for me. But when I thought about it as a job, like you're out in the world and you're supposed to be contributing something, um, I, I didn't. I didn't want to do that. And I felt like I never would do anything worthwhile kind of, you know, I would just be slogging through. Uh, and, and I wanted to, to try, you know, I, I felt like I would rather, I would rather fail at this than succeed at being a chemical engineer was how I felt. Uh, just because your, your passion was driving you. Yeah. It was also, I, I think I imagined that adult life had a lot more free time than it does. <laughs> um, you know, like while I, while I was studying to be a chemical engineer, it was the first time in my life that I wasn't writing because I just didn't have time or like mental resources. Uh, and so I knew I couldn't, you know, I couldn't give myself to something else wholly and then still like write. For, I mean, I, other people do it and I'm, I'm amazed by that. You know, I, I think I read Vincent Lamb was like a doctor with two children working full time while also, you know, writing his first novel. And, and I don't know how people do that, but I like, I couldn't, you know, I just, I just ran out of reserves. Uh, and, and then, it, and then, yeah, and that was just like, not a, not a sacrifice I could make right then. So did you sort of abandon that? You, you were studying, uh, you, you were actually taking a, trying to get a, a degree in this course yeah, of study yeah. and you abandoned it. Yeah, I I changed uh, midway through to uh, English and psychology. Okay, so do you find that your background in science uh, and and you know the math and science does that inform you as a writer in some way? Like, does it come up sometimes? Not so much anymore. I would say that my background in psychology actually comes up more often. Um, sometimes I, you know, again that that was a decision I made very yeah. young, right? It's just to switch halfway through, and sometimes I wish I had gotten a degree in something unrelated uh, 
because you know because I think it would inform my writing and, and make it and make it richer um I don't yeah and, and then but I've had actually a number of psychologists since uh comment on like certain certain aspects of my writing and that they see like they, they see like some of the theory coming through and I'm always very surprised by that, but you know, it, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, it's not, I, you, you chose something a little more impractical on some level or rather, uh, I shouldn't say impractical. You've obviously become very successful as a writer, but I, did you have any external pressure to maybe like, Hey, like maybe just stick with that. Writing is something you can do later. Like maybe just get that more, you know, safe job or whatever, safe degree. Like, did you have that pressure? Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, especially again, when I was when I first made the decision to go into chemical engineering, I think, uh, yeah, I think my family was relieved. And it was also just like the hard, the hard truth of it, right? You know, I remember, we had a, we had like a booklet in a high school. I don't remember what the book that class was called, like career and personal planning, something like that, Mm -hmm. um, that had average salaries and writer was at the bottom. Uh, (laughs) And and yeah, and I did, yeah. And I did like, I did learn more about like how quite how difficult and quite how unlikely this would be. You know, it was like, it was like saying, you know, I want to be a pro athlete or, you know, I want to be a ballerina. Like these were, this is a very unlikely choice. Uh, And I think I'm not, I just sort of don't have the personality for that in a lot of ways. Like I'm, I'm surprised all the time (laughs) that I turned out to be an artist of any kind. Like when I think about like who I am in my regular life and the the choices I kind of make, I think I'm, yeah, I mean, like I I think I I am somebody who values stability and privacy and all, and, and, you know, all all kinds of things that don't make sense for being, for, you know, trying to be a a working artist. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But, but yeah, but the pull of the actual art was, was ultimately too strong. Well, you mentioned that when you first began writing uh, as a young person that you were emulating certain writers. Uh, do, do you have influences you can cite that people that still influence you today even? Uh, one one person I always come back to is uh, David Rakoff. Um, whenever I get I get stuck on a prose level, like I feel like I don't know what a, what a sentence is anymore. Kind of. <laughs> uh, I, I could go back and I read one of his essays. Uh, and, and sadly... I mean, he, I mean, he, he wrote four books in his life, which is not an insignificant amount of books, but to me, it feels small because I reread them so much. Uh, mm-hmm. He he died quite young. Uh, and that, that always feels like a great tragedy to me is I wish he had written more essays so that I could, so I would, you know, just have more of him. So we would all have more of him. Um, right. But yeah, he's definitely something I come back to, especially on like a technical level. I feel like he writes the perfect sentence every time. Um so do you still have doubt? I mean, you, you, you seem like you've, you've, we were just discussing this path, this fork in the road, I suppose, and you chose your path. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's going very well for you. But are you still someone who has doubt before you start uh, writing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> not just before I start writing, but kind of all the time. Um, hmm. It feels, it feels very precarious and unlikely to me all the time uh even even living it even at the best of times even at the at the busiest times um it always it always feels like it could it could end at any minute kind of um or or like i i really like this you know this is the life i would choose if i could choose but i kind of will do it as long as it's feasible as long as like you know there is a way for me to do it, but I don't necessarily think that will be my whole life. Uh, hmm. Hmm. 
when you say it will end, do you mean people's interest in you writing or, or your, you know, ability to feel inspired to keep doing it? I guess it's just me publishing books. You know, like, I, like, <laughs> like right. you know, that, that's what it comes down to, right? I mean, I mean, you, I can always write for fun, right? Uh, or for any other reason, like, but, but yeah, I think, I think like I will publish books as long as people will publish my books. And I hope that, you know, I die with a pen in my hand, but you know, I, I don't, I don't count on that necessarily. I see. Okay. Well, this book, the Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore is is wonderful. Do you have a sense of a future for this? Like it has a cinematic quality to me, if I might say, uh, on some level. Um, it conjured for me very vivid imagery. Do you have a sense of uh, a future for this book beyond you know it as a like? Could it be? Do you have a sense that it could be turned into something else, so to speak, or or do you have hopes for that for something like this? Uh, actually, 724 Films, the Canadian production company, they uh, they recently bought the TV option for, or, well, they bought the option. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, congratulations. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. You know, you know um, I, I really hope that, that uh, they, they, you know, that the production goes forward and things happen. Uh, I know, I know, you know, an option is just the first step in like a very complex process that, that all, the majority of the time doesn't proceed, uh, but it is very exciting. It is like, uh, you know, a company that I think has done, has done great, great and exciting work. And so I, I hope so. I, I also feel it has a cinematic quality. It, it totally, uh, totally, totally does. If I might say, I, I think, you know, to me actually like, you know, in our golden era of television or whatever, I feel like it definitely has that feel. I think it definitely has the feel of like a limited series. Um, mm-hmm. I can definitely picture it that way. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, I hope it, I hope it turns out. I hope there's more to report on that front. Is that was that a dumb question? Do you hope that your book gets turned into a TV show or a movie? Like, I mean, is, is that obvious? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I assume most writers would say yes. I'm trying to imagine a scenario where they wouldn't. Uh, I think something's interesting to me is that I think writers. It's interesting which writers want to do the adaptation themselves. Like, which writers would really. Their, their top choice would be to write the screenplay themselves or the teleplay themselves. And some writers are like, God, no, like I would, I really don't want to be involved at all. Kind of. Um, and I fall more into the latter camp. Actually. I feel like, I feel like TV and movies are their own medium. Um, and I would always be, I would always, I would always be influenced by, by the original text in a way I don't think is necessarily ideal for for changing the pro- changing the format of the project, um, I think someone who's coming to it fresh is is going to do a better job. Uh, Interesting than, than I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some I, I think the former the the writing group that you the writer group that you described the former that wanted to be hands on wouldn't want to see their story sort of edited or massacred in any way, you know. And that when you're making a a film production, they they're going to tell you we had to cut out this scene, or worse, we had to cut out this character. I mean, how are you going to deal with that? I think you accept it as its own creature. Okay. You know, I think <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, when I think about like the, well, I'm blanking on specifics now, but I think like generally speaking, um, like, like fight club is a classic example, right? I think the, the film is incredibly different from the book. Yes. Um, you know, they're both, they're both very much their own creatures. Um, and like they're, and they're very, they very much open you to engaging in them in extremely different ways. Uh, and that was, and that's for the best. Uh, I think that, and I think that's often true. I think, 
And yeah, and again, I think that I would be overly attached to certain aspects and characters, uh, and I wouldn't be able to make the the hard calls when you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to make the hard calls like thinking of like you know TV as and all of the limitations it have and all the things that are valuable about it. Um, I would be stuck on thinking like, but I love this character, right. you know, which is yeah, like, yeah. No, I mean, you sound like you have a very uh, you know even-handed approach here. I, I hope it goes forward. Like you said, do you have you have you had the experience of this before where something has been picked up or optioned and then just sort of didn't go anywhere? No, I just, I've heard from several people that like statistically that's what happens most of the time. Like from several people who work in TV um, that, that like, like most of the time they just buy lots and lots of options uh, and then only, only like a fraction of them go forward uh, because it's just, you know, because it's just good to have the options. Like it's just, it's there, it, that's the earliest stage of consideration for these ideas. Um, so I know that I know that statistically that's what happens, but I'm still hopeful. Well, I am too. I, I think it would be wonderful. And uh, I want to ask you before we wrap up here, just in terms of plans beyond uh, this book. Obviously, I know you're 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 going to be uh, speaking at uh, very. I assume you're going to be speaking at a few different uh, writing writers festivals in the coming months. Is that fair? Yeah, quite a lot this fall, actually. I'm going to the Sunshine Coast Festival and then Eden Mills in Guelph uh, and then the Fraser Valley Festival and then the IFOA in Toronto, um, as well as the Toronto Public Library. Uh, and then I'm doing the Portland Literary Festival and the, <laughs> doing an event here in Seattle. And it's all kind of clumped together. Like, uh, this is sort of my last week home. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, wow. Yeah. So, so do you? I, I, not to, uh, uh, you know, get to scrutinize it too much. Do you enjoy the Writers Festival experience? I assume you do. You've signed on to do a bunch, but it is a fascinating. Like I attend lots of music festivals. I've attended lots of writers festivals. It's it's interesting to see how it plays out. Do you enjoy the experience? I like them now. It it took me a while with my first novel to get into the rhythm of it. Um, I, I used to find them just so anxiety producing. Mm. Um, it was what I was saying before about, you know, I'm, my personality is not necessarily, you know, suitable to being read. I suppose like this aspect of it, right. When I first started the idea of getting up in front of a crowd and talking or, or even this, like recording a podcast or being on live radio, uh, it was so frightening to me initially. Uh, but then like the more I've done it, the more I've like come to recognize the aspects of it. I really enjoy. And with the festivals, you just get to meet a lot of, like a real, lot of people from like all over the place who lives in who live in places you would not necessarily visit otherwise, um, and who are extremely excited and engaged with with writing and books, and that's why they're there. Uh, and it ends up being a lot of fun. And then I really love meeting other writers at festivals. Um, I have found that the writers may be wilder than the musicians. <laughs> there's just there's something going on with the writers. They just when they let loose, it's bananas. I, I don't. I've never seen anything like it. The musicians are generally a bit more sedate. That's the opposite of what we would think. You know, that has not been my experience. But I think <laughs> I actually think that's calming down. Um, I don't. From what I because I've only been doing this for a few years, and yeah. so for me, the experience has been a, a little bit a little bit calmer and more civilized. Um, but when I've talked to writers who've been doing it for a long time, they say that it's it's getting calmer. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, just the, just the you know, carousing, the joy. They just did something about it. I think it's kind of cool, actually. Like, they, you would think, a, you know, based, they might be more reserved, more academic. It's not necessarily the case. It, it depends. You totally. know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing, of course. I've just observed things at writers' festivals that I've never seen at a music festival. I'll just say that. 
I'll leave it at that and let people's That's imaginations. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, it's not that. It's not terrible. It just, I just have seen. Anyway, I won't go for it's. I'm generalizing too, and it's just been my own experience. I, I think it's actually kind of endearing, frankly, that they like to have so much fun. That's really that's really interesting. I have not I have not heard that about writers before. You got uh, you have to let loose at these festivals, Kim. Just just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I did you know one once I was at a festival and I I didn't end up going to the hospitality suite and then somebody told me like the next morning um, that they were. They were pouring like water glasses full of vodka. Like if you ordered <laughs> yes. vodka, you yes. it was like a water tumbler. And I was like, I'm kind of glad I went to bed. <laughs> exactly. I think for some, it's like that's too much. Yeah. Are you working on a, a, a new book or, or a writing project that you can divulge any uh, information about right now? Um, I have a bunch of short story commissions simultaneously. And I've actually never, I think I've never had a short story commission before this year. And this year I have nine of them. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I'm focusing on those. And part of me is hoping that it turns into a, a book of short stories. But, you know, nine stories is very far away from a book. Right. Uh, and so I and I kind of do, I kind of don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I'm but I'm working on those right now. OK, well, that's fair. to That's I appreciate that. Uh, and I mean, you've written a poetry, a volume of poetry, a, a few novels now. You've you seem like you and you've written for many publications. You, you're writing constantly. I try to be. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 excellent. Now, where can people learn more about uh, both you and this book, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore? Uh, my website's a good way to go. It's uh, kim-foo.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, at skimfoo, so it's just my name with an S in front. and also on Instagram by the same name. Skim. Why skim? <laughs> Actually, it was when when Gmail first started. Uh, I, I guess like 15, 20 years ago. I don't know. They required you to have six letters. Oh, they did? I don't remember yeah. that. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, it, your your username had to be at least six letters long. And I kind of chose it arbitrarily. And then, I don't know. It just sort of stuck. <laughs> You're stuck with it now. Skimfu. Okay. But it's kim-foo.com is the website and skimfu on social media. Well, Kim, uh, this was a, a true pleasure, and I, I, I can't tell you again how much I enjoyed this book, The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore. I urge people to read it, and I hope we speak again sometime. Best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you. It was, it was great to be on. Special thanks again to Kim Fu for appearing on this, the 419th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on things like YouTube and Spotify and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for on any of those platforms, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative or follow me at Vish Khanna. And listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. Around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly pledge to keep this podcast going. It could be in any amount you choose and your support of any kind is greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, speaking of appreciating people and things, thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support of this show. Thanks, too, to my friend Jim Guthrie, who lets me use the instrumental version of his song, The Rest is Yet to Come, to end the show each and every week. JimGuthrie.org for more info about him and his work. 
And finally, thanks to you for listening to this show and reviewing it and rating it positively and downloading episodes and subscribing to the show and asking your friends to check out the show. All that stuff helps, means the world. I will talk to you very, very soon. Be well. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.